Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Kokoro Movement Podcast. On this episode, we have the great and powerful Michael Boyle. I'm really excited to get into this conversation, but first, a message from Dr. Kelly Sturette. For your listeners, we have created, it's the readystate.com slash Kokoro Movement. We've got, we've got something for you. You know, we have, if you just want a two-week on-ramp crash course, full access to everything, we'll give that to you for two weeks. Come, come see how we're solving the problems. Take, steal what you like, you know, leave the rest behind, you know, keep speaking your own movement language. All right, my friends, once again, there you have it. Please take advantage of that free offer from the readystate.com. I'm just going to jump right into this conversation with Michael Boyle. Here we go. Today is your first day open, right? You guys open yes. your back first up? day open in nine weeks. How's that going for you guys? Because uh, we- it actually went really well. It was mostly this morning where we were done with the majority of it by noontime, and then we've been doing personal training between eleven and four, and then we're gonna have a couple of adult groups tonight. Okay, cool. Because we um, run a small boutique gym here in Flagstaff, Arizona, and this is our first day open as well. And so, um, one of the trainers, he did mostly morning classes and I'm going to do mostly evening classes. So it's going to work out that way, but you know, it's just, it's such a weird time to be alive (laughs) and it just, and it just keeps getting crazier and crazier. So, um, yeah, I'm glad to hear you guys are open because you had some, did you guys have some kind of controversy around that or? Well, yeah, cause well, initially the federal plan had said we would be phase one. Yeah. And then our state plan came out and said phase three. And they said they didn't know when phase three would be, that it would be a minimum of six weeks, but could potentially be longer depending on the transition from you know phase one to two. So we should, if, if the numbers continue to go down this week, which they have been consistently going down, then phase two will allow us to do personal training, one-on-one stuff inside. So yeah. we'll be... Uh, yeah, you because I saw your the, I saw the setup that you guys had for the outside, and that looked, man, it's one of those things you can just kind of dream of, you know. <laughs> just yeah, really. we like, you know, we had the turf space. We like, okay, we can make this work. Right. Yeah. A little looked, bit smaller groups than we're used to, but you know, we're you got to do what you got to do, right? Absolutely. So, um, what? So I've been asking all the leaders in the industry this question: like, what do you see Are as we- like? Are we recording? Sorry. Yeah. Yes, yeah, sir. We are. Yep. Oh, we are. Okay. So we're on. All right. I just yeah. Like, okay, yeah. So I just like to just start because, you okay, know, there's cool. times where I forget or, you know, a lot of the really good conversation kind of comes before you get that. Recording no, I know. That's started. why sometimes I do that for 10 minutes with people. And then I'm like, this would be really good if we were t- before recording. Right. Keep absolutely. <laughs> so I'm really honored to have you on. And uh, one of the things that I really wanted to ask everybody that's coming on right now is what you see as challenges as of owning a gym space in the future because as everybody else we really had to pivot really hard kind of out of nowhere you know because we didn't really have a whole lot of warning 
on shutting our gym down. They were just talking about it. And then the next day it happened here in Arizona. And so then we started uh, transitioning to online training. And then um, I'm a massage therapist also. So that was like one of those things that I really had to figure out is how to save that aspect of my business and just really kind of working from there. And now I've started doing house calls for massage therapy because people's homes, they're in control of that environment. They feel a lot more comfortable there come, than coming to the office, which is also in my gym. So I'm just kind of wondering what your thoughts are on that or if you guys have uh, talked about that at all. I think in all honesty, I think it's going to go back to normal really fast. But I also think the one lesson from this is to have an emergency fund. We're really lucky in terms of I have a, my business partner and I have been together for 20 years now. He yeah. runs the business side. I run the training side basically. And he's, I always tease him. He's like a squirrel. You know, he's always saving his, saving his nuts for the winter. You know, he's always one of these guys who's like, you know, like we have way too much money in the bank. And sometimes I look and think, why do we, you know, what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> he's always like, Oh, I just, you know, I'm never comfortable if we don't have three months of expenses. And I kind of just got to a point where I was like, whatever, this is what makes Bob happy. Yeah. I'm not going to worry about it. It's, you know, we still have the money. It's our money. It's in the bank. It's great. And then we get hit with this. And suddenly the fact that we have all that money basically means that we're not, I mean, we're not happy about being closed for nine weeks, Right. but it also isn't going to put us out of business. Right. And so I think that's the biggest lesson is knowing that, um, you know, the kind of Murphy's law, whatever, the worst possible thing that could happen could happen. Right. And you have to be prepared for that financially. You have to know that, okay, do I have three months of rent in the event that another crazy virus shows up or, you know, whatever it is, or, you know, who knows, you know, 9-11 terrorist attack, you know, there could be any, anything. This was unprecedented. I'm 60 years old. Nothing like this has ever happened. There's never been any situation like this where the economy shut down, where people said, you know, close restaurants, close businesses, close all, all of these, you know, put the professional sports teams, um, you know, on hold things that you, I would have told you would never happen in my lifetime have all happened. Right. Now you look, now we've got, you know, we got rioting in the streets, but that has happened. Right. The Rodney King situation where they said, I think I read was 28 years ago, which I can't believe it was that long ago, but that was probably the last time we've had it at this level, but they had it in Ferguson a couple of years ago. So you just have to be prepared. You have to sort of, um, hope for the best plan for the worst, I think is the lesson. Yeah. And so I started my business five years ago and I started to understand that the massage therapy profession is really cyclical. There's ups and downs, you know, there's like times of the year where people just disappear completely, like for, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And you're just like, Hey, I still have to pay my bills, you know? So then I really uh, made that jump into coaching. Cause I'd been a CrossFit coach for a really long time. And then once I got into the massage therapy profession, I started to understand that there was different ways to move and there's different ways that you should move. And so that's when I started following uh, guys like you um, and all of the leaders in the strength and conditioning industry, because you're not just focused on going fast, you're focused on performance, you know? So um, that's when I started my training profession. And then that is what saved me throughout this pandemic is that all of my coaching clients transitioned to online training. So I was still getting paid that baseline that I needed to pay all my bills. And then I just was thinking, man, all these other 
massage therapists out there just have nothing to fall back on, you know, and that's, and I learned about saving money this year, you know, I'm close to 40 and I'm like, Oh, saving money is pretty cool because then you can afford stuff. You know, I can afford education courses, all kinds of things. And so, you know, all that money that I had saved up at the beginning of the year went to paying my quarterly taxes, went to, you know, being kind of a cushion if I couldn't, if, uh, you know, inevitably some of those online train, uh, training clients fell off and I had that money available to kind of buffer me out a little bit. And so this, this has really encouraged me to save a lot more money. So I'm glad that, uh, you mentioned that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, like I said, it's, it, it's a good lesson for everybody in, in every area. And I think, but I do think it's funny we were doing, we had a zoom class today that was going on while we were doing our outdoor classes. And they said they had as many people still on the zoom as they normally did. And one of the things we're going to have to do, we've been doing zoom and Instagram and Facebook and all this stuff and doing it for free yeah, for our clients. And in return, our clients, a lot of them were continuing to pay, which was great, but it wasn't any you know, additional charge. We didn't really transition say to, to online training as much as we offered a bunch of these different options. We had programs on Train Heroic that people could download and do on their own. We had classes that people could attend. And we may start charging for that. We may say, okay, you know, you can be a, you know, a member and, you know, the membership entitles you to the Zoom classes. You could just be a Zoom member from wherever you are. Like you could become a Zoom member at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning and go through the classes if you wanted to do that. So, so there is, I think we've learned a lot. Like if you look at this, I'd never, I've never done so many podcasts, so many Zooms. You know, now I'm, I feel very comfortable with the idea of, hey, I can do a PowerPoint presentation. I can share my screen. I can show video. And these are all things that I couldn't do before or I probably wasn't as comfortable doing. So I think there's always something positive that pops out of this stuff. Yeah, and that, that's exactly what I was doing. I immediately uh, started coaching a lot of kin stretch classes online. And then so today's the first day where I started a – started moving that to a monthly payment model. And so there's a lot of people that were doing those classes for free this whole entire pandemic. And now they're jumping onto that online platform and starting to pay me for that, which is, you know, one of my, which was one of my goals kind of from the very beginning was just to get, just to get something else. And so I'm still going to be coaching those classes in person, but I'm also going to be giving them the online format. So then that's the first time in my career where I understood that I could expand out past my local community, which has just been really kind of eye-opening for me. So somebody sees what I'm doing on Instagram or whatever it is and likes what I'm doing, then they can sign up for an affordable fee and still train with me. And they don't even have to live in Flagstaff, which is a huge deal. Yep. Yep. There's a lot of, there's always going to be some positives there. Absolutely. And so you just got to really reach for them. So, um, man, and so how long have you owned your own gym? Uh, we've owned our own gym for 23 years. Okay. So we started in, I think, well, actually, no, I'm lying. 25, 19, well, 97, no, 23, 1997. We okay. Right on. And then where'd you work before that? Uh, I've been, at, I, this is my 38th year coaching. And most of it was at Boston University prior to that. So okay. I started at Boston University basically six months out of college uh, as an athletic trainer. Hated it. 
and realized I wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach. So I quit my paid job and I volunteered as a strength and conditioning coach in, I think, 1983. Okay. Well, it's tough to tough to keep it all chronologically which would be 37 years ago yeah that's and i stayed at boston university till 2012 even after we'd opened our own business in 97 but i had about 15 years where i was kind of bouncing in between working at our facility and still working at the university okay so what made you want to open up your own gym you just thought it was time i didn't want to be the guy who didn't open up his own gym i think that was the biggest thing when i first started to see that for-profit strength and conditioning is going to happen. There are going to be strength and conditioning coaches that are out there. Because I had started in the summer training some athletes. I had started training pro hockey players probably in about 1990. And I would built up a nice little business where I was making some money in the summer training pro hockey players. And then I started to have parents call me about their kids because I was getting some attention in the newspapers and things like that. Clients were doing well. And I thought, I don't want to coach high school kids. You know, I'm a college coach. I'm a pro coach. I don't want to coach high school kids. But then I started thinking, wow, you know, if I take another 10 high school kids, I can make another, you know, five, $6,000 in the summer. You know, and at that time I was making $20,000 or something at Boston University. Yeah. So I thought, why not? So I took 10 high school kids in addition to the 10 or 12 uh, professional guys that I had. And then I started thinking, wait a second, this is a business. So probably by, by 95, I had about 120 athletes in the summer. And I was always more than I could manage. People wanted me to train their kids during the year. I couldn't do it. Basically, when summer was over, over see you later. Time to go. And, um, as I started to look through this, I realized, wow, you know, this could be a year-round business. And it's going to be a year-round business for somebody. Right. And I thought, I don't want to, I always thought, I don't want to be that guy who looks back and says, oh, I could have done that. You know, it's amazing how many people you meet and they're, oh, I could have done that. You know, it's the guy you meet, oh, yeah, I could have played pro baseball, you know, had a shoulder injury. You always meet those guys, oh, I could have, you know, I was going to go D1 in football, hurt my knee. And I was like, I don't want to be that guy, like, oh, yeah, I could open the strength and conditioning business. So I said, I got to do it. You know, you, you don't, you don't, I guess, you don't get anything from being on the sideline. Right. And it, oh, it was like, get in the game. Yeah. And you so, just got to do it. Like in the worst that happens is it doesn't work out. And then at that point you exactly. still had a job anyway, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I never was worried. I never worried about what would happen if it didn't work out. It's really funny, but that was never a big thing for me. Cause I always felt like if I'm going to do something, I'm going to figure out a way to make it work out. Right. And so, you know, a big part of my mindset during this whole uh, pandemic has been from jujitsu because i started mixed martial arts uh god when was it 15 years ago and uh you know just kind of waiting and seeing what happens and then reacting to the information that you have you know so that's you know essentially what you're talking about well i'm gonna open this gym well is it gonna fail i don't know i haven't gotten there yet right now i'm just opening this gym you know but imagine I mean? thinking like i look at it and think you know, going to open this gym, is, is it going to fail? Like, what kind of a mindset is that in terms of why would you, you know, if you open up with the idea that you might fail, you probably will. Right. <laughs> That's what I look at it. Well, because... I opened up with the idea that, that I was going to succeed, that I had already kind of, I had seeded this business. I had realized that, hey, I built up a really good business in the summer with no effort, no marketing, no nothing. Just we did a good job training the people we trained. And, you know, one person told another person it was entirely 
organically word of mouth driven. And I thought, Hey, we can, we can do this year round. Yeah. And, and that's we built a really good business. Yeah. That's awesome. Just, and just kind of diving into it. I like it. Um, when did you, uh, hook up with uh, Gray Cook because you guys came up with the joint by joint approach to, together. Is that correct? Well, you know, it's funny. I met Gray probably right around the time I opened my business, probably like late 90s, early 2000s, when he was just, you know, he was starting to get, I had just gotten out of physical therapy school. He had come up with the FMS idea. But joint by joint really was joint by joint was a conversation at a bar. Yeah. We were talking about. FMS and overhead squat and and I basically said you know overhead squat's always an ankle issue. Yeah. I said you know as as soon as you raise most people's heels, almost everybody becomes a two. Right. And and he said I still remember exactly. He said well yeah he goes it's just like mobile stable mobile stable mobile stable and I'm like what do you mean he goes well ankles should be mobile and knees should be stable and hips should be mobile and lumbar spine should be stable and I was like I was sitting there going this is brilliant. And I literally told him, I said, stop. He's like, why stop? I'm like, stop. And I got waved at the bartender and I had him give me a bar napkin. And I started, wrote like ankles, mobile, knees, stable, hips, mobile, lumbar spine, stable. I wrote it all down on the napkin. And then I looked at him. I said, start, you keep going. Yeah. And he just kind of laughed at me. And he's one of those guys. He's so smart. He says really smart things that he doesn't necessarily think are all that smart. Yeah. And, um, that was one of those things because I sat down afterwards and thought, wow, this is, this is exactly how we train or how we should be training or how somebody, you know, in a perfect world should train. And so I wrote the article and I just gave him credit because it really wasn't my thought process, but it wasn't like, it wasn't that we developed it. It's just that we were sitting, having a couple of beers and the conversation turned to this concept. Yeah, that's awesome. Because that was one of the first things that I kind of dove into when I graduated massage school. And it was just really game changing for me because all the people that were coming in that were runners or, you know, CrossFit athletes or whoever that were coming in with knee pain, that was just a, a huge deal and a huge understanding for me that I needed to start looking either uh, upstream or downstream for a mobility issue that's causing that knee pain instead of just hammering on the knee which is what massage therapists are taught yeah. to do yeah and it's funny that's i mean it's these are things that now i think it's kind of funny because like, people look at these things and think that oh it's just common sense but it wasn't common sense we spent more time treating the site you know and that like i'd read you know, i remember reading Charlie sarman's book and she was saying you know anytime a muscle is injured look for a weak synergist yeah you know we'd always say you know, anytime a joint's painful, look, look at the joint above or look at the joint below. Like these are all things that, that we started to realize were just hitting us in the face yeah. all the time. And now it's really funny because everybody looks at that stuff and thinks, oh yeah, that's just common sense. Every, everybody knows that. And I'm like, actually in 2000, everybody didn't know that. In 2000, there were people with patella tendonitis and they were, you know, icing the crap out of somebody's knee and moving their patella around and putting tape on and people still do it. I still run into people now who still don't get, like I see someone with a knee, with knee pain. And the first thing I do is look at their hips. First thing. Yeah. And I've had more people say to me after giving me a minute or two kind of patiently and say, um, remember I said it was my knee. And I'm like, I know you said it was your knee. I get it. Yeah. I just need to look at your hips. Cause I, I don't think, I don't think in my mind, knees don't go bad. They don't just mysteriously go bad. Right. There's got to be a reason. 
and it's usually an ankle mobility issue or a hip stability issue right. that causes somebody to have knee pain. So Right. And that's a that was one of the first Instagram arguments that I ever got in was about the ankle mobility and knees over toes squatting. And I just <laughs> now, normally when people um comment on stuff like that i just let it go but this guy just picked the right time and the right day and i just we got after it and i that's the first thing that well, i put it's really in there. interesting too because i always think if somebody has knee pain i really try to minimize the knee over toe movement right because it does because it produces a greater knee angle and will make knees painful right but if somebody doesn't i don't even worry about it right and so it's one of those it's not it's not like a simple yes, no kind of thing. But. Yeah, and it's uh, it's going to take time for them to get ankle mobility. You don't just tell them that they have an immobile ankle, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, that was a problem. Now I fixed it. You know, it's going to be – so the way I look at mobility is just like strength training. It takes time in order to acquire that mobility. So you have to – you can't just force somebody into those positions. You have to have them squat in a way that pertains to that person. Yeah. Yeah, and, so. and I mean, I, I wrote an article years ago called, uh, does it hurt? And that's what I always tell people. It's like, it hurts, don't do it. I mean, it's the simplest, it's the simplest possible thought process. But I always say to somebody, we ask, you ask, you try to do an exercise. And I said, does it hurt when you do it? If you say yes, I say, don't do it. Right. And I don't care, you know, that doesn't matter. Knees over your toes, knees behind your toes, vertical tibia, doesn't make any difference. If it hurts, we're not going to do that. We're going to find a way to get you to move without hurting. Right. And then you guys are really big into that unilateral training, which made a lot of sense to me as well. Once I started to kind of dive into uh, that swimming pool, um, you know, single leg deadlifts, lunges, all that kind of stuff. And I just, that really became the base of my training. And would, and one of the reasons why I started to kind of, inadvertently transfer out of the CrossFit space and then more into my own kind of strength and conditioning practice. Yeah. I mean, it's just the same thing in terms of it just makes too much sense. Right. And again, you know, I've done, I've probably done three or four zooms or podcasts or whatever week. And I have the same conversation with people. It's if you can just remove all of the sort of, macho bullshit that surrounds squatting and just say, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to work in this kind of preconceived idea that the squat is the king of all lifts and everybody has to squat. And, and then you start looking at it from a very common sense standpoint. I mean, how can unilateral training not make sense? Right. It's so little done in life that is bilateral. Right. And, and you know, in life or in sport or whatever anybody's doing, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Muscle function is completely different in unilateral stance. There's just so much, so much supporting information. Sometimes I get, I struggle with people and think, how can this not be glaringly obvious to you? Like it is glaringly obvious to me. Right. So Dr. Perry Nicholson put it this way, 80% of walking and 100% of running is on one leg. So why aren't you training that way? Right. And I was just like, yes. Good job, Perry. You know, so <laughs> that's awesome. So I, I kind of want to rewind a little bit to um, coaching the high school kids. So have you seen a difference in the athleticism of 
high school kids and even before that, um, since you started coaching until now? Um, in, I would say, have I seen a difference? I don't think so, no. I think people okay. want to say there's a difference, but I, don't, I have not seen a difference. I would okay. not say there's better athletes, there's worse athletes. There's probably – the specialization is definitely increasing. The multi-sport kid is slowly disappearing. But, um, you know, are the kids less athletic? Do they move uh, less efficiently? I don't think so. I just yeah. think it's, uh, you know, are the parents driving them to specialize in one sport at an early age? Well, the big thing we're seeing, not, not less, less athleticism, but we're seeing adult injuries in younger and younger kids all the time. So you're seeing kids, you know, kids having Tommy John surgery, kids having hip surgery, kids having low back pain. And I always look at that and think that's, that, that shouldn't happen. You shouldn't, I always say you shouldn't see adult injuries in children. Right. You know, when someone comes to me, you know, my son's having trouble with his groin. I'm like, that's not good. Like your son shouldn't be having trouble with his groin. Yeah. Because, you know, that's, I mean, what is he doing so much that his groin hurts or his hip hurts or his back hurts or his knee hurts? And um, so I think that's where the difference is. Yeah. So I've only coached a few and the ones that I saw, we don't really have a strength and conditioning program here in Flagstaff, Arizona for the high schools. And so their movement literacy was really not good. <laughs> like for lack of a better phrase, they, you know, when I was asking them to do just regular body weight lunges, a lot of them couldn't get their knee to the ground. They had knees caving in and ankles collapsing and all kinds of different stuff. And, but I would say that was, that was kids 20 years ago too. I don't think that, I don't think anything particularly unique to the fact it's amazing and great athletes don't necessarily move like great athletes. That's one of the things that I think you'll always find. I can remember screening FMSing NBA basketball guys. And I had one guy who wouldn't move done said, he said, I want you to know, he said that hour, that's the least athletic I've ever felt during that hour with you going through the FMS because <laughs> yeah. I could do everything better than he could. Right. And except that's a, play basketball. Right. I, that's I couldn't, a, I couldn't play Spina the NBA. But when uh, Dr. Spina was teaching the FRC course that I attended, that's what he said too. Like you'd be surprised at how bad basketball players are at moving outside of their sport. Yeah. It's just really surprised at how bad all plays baseball players. Basketball players, football players, players, you'd be very surprised. I mean, if they haven't been well taught, they probably won't move well. That's really interesting. It's just, um, it's, when you started coaching, did you ever think that you would be coaching like NBA athletes and all these high-level athletes, or did it just kind of happen? I mean, it just, it just happened. I, I, was, I mean, it's actually really interesting. You know, when it first started to happen, I have to admit it was like it was like wow I can't believe that this is happening to me, right? And um, you know I never thought that you know I never thought about the people that I'm going to be training. I'm going to be watching people on TV that I train. Right. My father was a high school teacher, high school coach, then a high school principal, and I think initially you know just the fact wow I was at Boston University training Division One athletes. I thought that was really really cool. Yeah. And then started having some friends from Boston University bringing over like Boston College was big time division one big time division one basketball big time division one football similar level of hockey 
to Boston University, but in you know basketball, football, they were much bigger. And I started getting some BC basketball guys and some BC football guys after their career was over. Because at that time, there was not even a strength coach at Boston College. And they were a big Division One school. And at Boston University, we had a strength coach. So I started getting guys coming over. And it was the same thing, thinking, wow, I can't believe, you know, that I'm interacting with these people. Right. And then the Bruins offered me a job in 1990 or 91, I forget. And I just couldn't believe, like, okay, I'm going to work for the Boston Bruins. Now, I'm a kid that grew up in right outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and suddenly, um, you know, I'm at the games. I'm in the garden. I'm at the practice rink. You know, I'm, I'm around all these guys. Like, the, I'm around the guys I saw on TV. Right. But the one thing you realize, I mean, the good thing about that, I was probably, well, in like 1990, I was 30. And I was around these guys. One, some of them were the same age as me. And, you know, even the younger guys weren't that much younger than I was. They had significantly more money than I did, obviously. But they're just regular people. Yeah. And I think that was a really good thing for me at that stage of life to think, these are just regular guys. You know, they just they want to go out after the game and have a beer and be normal guys and just have a normal life. And they just happen to be better at hockey than somebody else. Right. And it was really good for me. And the other thing I realized, a lot of times they weren't happier than I was, even though they had a lot, a lot more money than I was. I used to go to my wife sometimes and say, I don't know if I really want to be rich. These guys are rich, but they got a lot of shit going on. There's a lot of problems, you know, things that we're not worrying about. And so it was a really good lesson for me to kind of be in that situation as a young guy at 30. I mean, I'm driving like this beater Toyota pickup truck into the practice rink and, you know, these guys are driving in and, you know, Mercedes and all these other things. But, uh, but I started to realize, I mean, I can coach these guys. And I started, then I started to realize I can coach anybody because yeah. I realized it was a relationship game. It wasn't, it wasn't about what you knew. It was about what you could get people to believe you knew. Right. Hold on. I'm going to sit with that for a second. That's really interesting <laughs> because, you know, I'm just here at the, like the beginning of my career. So when you're talking about doing something for 38 years, that's just, you know, that's a long time to be doing something. And that's just, it's, if you, that's also proof that if you just stick with something for a long period of time, you're going to get really good at it and you're going to be yeah. known for that one thing, you know? So that's a, uh, it's, you know, if everybody you keep trying to get better. I think yeah. that's the key. If you keep trying to get better, I think there are a lot of people who do the same thing for 38 years and probably were never really good at it to begin with. Yeah. And one thing for me, I was always trying to get better. I always sincerely wanted to be better. I always wanted to know, okay, what are the best people in the world doing? Yeah. And as you said, you know, continuing education, I, you know, I traveled, I went to seminars, I talked to people, I read articles, I made phone calls, always trying to figure out sort of where is this whole thing going? Right. And, uh, and I think that, that makes a difference that the desire to improve yourself matters because you're right. If you, if you have that and you just keep going and keep going and keep going, it does work out. Yeah. But people get sour, people get discouraged, people quit, people change jobs. And I never did. I never did any of those things. I never got, well, I will say I did get discouraged. I probably did have some days where I was discouraged, but in general, 
I just kept kind of going and moving forward and trying to figure out how to get better, how to get better as a coach, how to get better as a person, how to get better as a communicator. And over time, I mean, that's, it all kind of falls together. Yeah. Interesting. Cause that's one of those mindsets that I don't really understand. Um, you know, cause there's a bunch of people that I graduated massage school with that are just happy doing what they're doing. And I am, I get so frustrated when I come across a client or I'm coaching somebody and I can't figure out how to help them. And so then I'm constantly seeking the information on how to fill that gap in my narrative so that I can help these people. And so it just exactly. that's, yeah. that's exactly how I was. Most of what I learned was because I was working with someone who was injured and I thought, okay, they're not, they've done the conventional. And that's why I think I became unconventional. They've done what everybody says you're supposed to do and they're not, why aren't they better? Right. And that's, I mean, I discovered, really, I discovered functional training because I was working, if you're a hockey fan, I was working with a guy named Cam Neely, who now is president of the Boston Bruins. But at that time, he was the Boston Bruins' best player. He was a 50-goal scorer. He was a, I mean, he was a Boston icon. He was the guy. And he was hurt, and he wasn't getting better. Yeah. And I remember I reached out to Vern Gambetter, and I said, hey, you know, I need some ideas for knee, knee rehab for this guy. You know, he's really struggling. He's just not getting better. And he turned me on to Gary Gray, not Gray Cook, but Gary Gray. He said, yep. you really ought to talk to this guy, Gary Gray, in Michigan. And I called Gary up, and Gary was nice enough to – Yeah, I remember, still remember, he put he VHS taped a bunch of stuff and sent it to me. Yeah. You know, some ideas. He had, try this, try that. And I literally remember looking at stuff and thinking – I never thought of half the things that are on this tape. Yeah. Didn't dawn on me for a second. And yeah. it was all of this idea about, you know, about function and about unilateral training and about vectors and about the patellofemoral joint and just so much stuff where I was like, Oh my God, there's so much that I don't know. And the first thing that I did is I registered for his course. I went out. I still remember it was in Arizona. Actually it was in Phoenix. Yeah. Um, and uh, I went out to Phoenix and I went to a three day, I think that one might've been called when the foot hits the ground. Yeah. But uh, it was basically a course on function. And then at that time, functional rehab. And I remember Gary saying that he said the best thing that ever happened to him was being a poor physical therapist. He said, I had no money. He said, when everybody else was buying fancy equipment, buying the Cybex, buying the Kincom, buying all these things, he said, I didn't have the money. I just had to keep doing exercise. Yeah. He said, but, that was the best thing that ever happened to me because I didn't get sucked in by the machine people. I didn't get sucked in by the, you know, the kind of, I don't know what I like to call them tool people. You know, the tool is going to, the tool is going to save everybody. Right. And, uh, God, that guy had one of my paradigm shifts as well, because, you know, we live in this age of information that's just so phenomenal where you can literally find information on anything you could ever possibly want. And so once I, started diving into that space and started, you know, following physical therapy podcasts and strength and conditioning podcasts and whatever it was. And then I ran across uh, Gary Gray's concept of functional muscle function, which is what muscles do under the force of gravity, they decelerate. And so then I started focusing on that for a week, just trying to wrap my head around this new way of thinking that is completely the opposite of the way that the traditional school system teaches muscle function. And so, you know, obviously 
the quad extends the knee, but it mostly resists knee flexion. And that just took me a week to understand that. And so that's, you know, that was one of the big ones. Uh, next I, to I remember drug- sitting at the course and think, cause it's the same thing. It was like the unilateral training I did. It was so common sense when he started to talk about what, what muscles really did. When he started to talk about functional anatomy, you couldn't argue with him because you stand there saying, he's right. He's right. Then even, like you said, you, you uh, talked about, you know, Spina, you know, Dr. Spina talks about the same idea, you know, you call, you know, dead person anatomy. I use that term all the time. Yeah. Dead yeah. person anatomy and live person anatomy are entirely different anatomies. Right. And we were all taught, or most of us were taught this dead person version. Right. That really is not very useful. And then we were taught exercises that relied on the dead person version. Correct. So now we've got almost, it's almost like we've been like doubly deceived because someone told us the wrong thing about what the muscles did. Then they showed us the wrong exercises because it was based on the wrong premise. Right. And then suddenly someone like Gary comes along and said, oh, you know, this is totally different. You know, when you load, when the foot hits, they literally, the co- name of the course, when the foot hits the ground, when the foot hits the ground, everything changes. Yeah. You know, it's not like I said, you said, you know, quad extends the knee. I mean, really, I always thought the quad doesn't extend the knee. Yeah. It never happens. It's a synchronous action. You know, your calf extends your knee, your hamstring extends your knee, your glute extends your knee, your quad extends your knee. Like every muscle involved in locomotion is involved in that extension of the knee as you move from flexion to extension. Right. And everything, like you said, everything is involved in the eccentric control of flexion as you move through the eccentric contraction. There is no, it's not like this one circuit that's on. Yeah. And, and I just remember sitting there listening. And the good thing for me is it took me maybe five minutes. I, Cause at first I was like, what is he talking about? Right. And then I sat there and thought, damn, he's right. Yeah. I can remember going back. I still remember and this again, it was pre 97. I don't know when it was. I'll let's, I'll say it was 93. Yeah. I went back in 1993 and I went to our fitness director who their weight room was across the hall from mine. And I said, Hey, I got a 45 degree leg press and I got a leg extension and I got a leg curl and I got to get him out of here. Do you want him? And he was like, Oh man, a leg press and another leg extension, and a leg curl. I'll take him." I was like, can you, can you take him tomorrow? Can you get somebody in here to take this stuff out? Like I just started clearing all this shit out of my weight room yeah. that day. Like I don't need this stuff anymore. Right. This doesn't, this, this stuff is useless. And it, again, they were just the big, those really, you know, you, you, the, the term paradigm shift is probably overused, but yeah. that was a paradigm shift to me. That was when I, I became a better coach right. in that one weekend in Phoenix. Right. And that's how I became a better therapist was with that same exact phrase. Right. So if I can do all these different corrections on the table. But as soon as their foot touches the ground, everything changes because now the body's reacting to the environment again, you know, so then, you know, those muscles that were under threat are under threat again. So we have to, that's when I started integrating movement systems into my massage therapy practice, which then ultimately made me more effective. And then, which then leads into my coaching practice, because if somebody needs more than one massage a week, then you just start training with me. And then once they start training then I have a movement practice that's designed specifically for them and their pain symptoms. And then 
we just move on from there. And then eventually they just start training with me full time because they just feel great and they feel better and they can go back to their activities, whatever those activities are, riding bikes, rock climbing, whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, it just, it makes sense. Right. I mean, that's what I just, I wrote in functional training for sports 2004. I said, functional training is training that makes sense. Right. And I still believe that it just, if you, and then I said, but it, it only makes sense if you can suspend your disbelief momentarily. And right. that's where a lot of the conventional training people struggle. They struggle yeah. to suspend, you know, to suspend their, their disbelief or suspend their belief. Like if you believe that squatting is the exercise and squatting is the only thing that matters and blah, 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 then you can't believe in the other side. You can't look at the other side. Right. You have to sort of, you have to kind of, I hate, it sounds so new agey, but you really have to open your mind right. much more and think, which is what you want to do. Right. And asking, you know, whenever somebody comes in with pain, I start watching them move and I take them through my own personal movement screen that I've developed. And then I ask, what is this person not doing? Because that's probably what's contributing to their pain symptoms. And that's okay. the good thing. That's why we've had such huge success. Because now, like I said, you're a CrossFit coach. 99% of the people are either not doing the right things and or doing all the wrong things. Like it's, I look at it, think it's so simple to make people better. I look at everybody, anytime anybody's in pain, I'm almost like, come see me, let's talk. Right. And usually by the end of the conversation, we've come up with some strategies that will help them to, to feel better because it's like, okay, I need you to do these things. I need you to start you know, doing more foam rolling and doing more mobility work. I need to stop doing these things and these exercises because it'll be amazing the number of people who do things that they know hurt. Right. And you look and think, I mean, again, from a common sense standpoint, how can you be doing something that's painful and somehow be operating under the assumption that that might be good for you? Right. That makes no sense to me at all, but there's an amazing number of people that are in that kind of environment where they're, they're practicing painful exercise. Oh yeah. You know, I warm up, you know, I, you know, like I put some icy hot on, or I wear knee sleeves and I'm like, so you, you know, you try to warm up knowing that your shoulders are going to hurt and you try to protect your knees because you know that they hurt. Like let's go back. Let's be a little bit more proactive and let's try to find a way to do these movements that don't hurt. And that's where, like I said, you even you know think about joint by joint or just joint mechanics. Right. I had a, a girl the other day that trains me. We're doing overhead pressing, and she's like, "My shoulder clicks every time I do it." I said, "Okay." I said, "Go grab a kettlebell." I said, "Overhead press the kettlebell. Tell me if that hurts." She's like, "It still clicks." I'm like, "Grab me a bottoms up kettlebell." She's like, "It still clicks." I gave her back the dumbbells. I said, "Okay, I want you to start here, almost like you're going to try to bite the dumbbells." And then I want you to, to, to think you're going to circularly press them up. You know, and we were actually doing one at a time. And she's like, oh, the click's gone. I was like, okay, that's how we're going to press. And it wasn't anything more than knowing that the click is that rotator cuff under the acromion. And it, she was like, it's not painful. It's just clicky. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't want the click because the click will become painful. I want to take the click away. Right. But it's just a, an experimentation process. To, to say, like, it, it's that with people with squatting, you, know, you start teaching people how to squat better. And I've had people say, oh, that, that doesn't hurt my knees to do that. Like, okay. That's how we're going to do it. Yeah. 
<laughs> I know it's really funny because I common sense. Say, but yeah. I have in my presentations, if you've seen my stuff, I put that uh it's of actually Voltaire quote that sometimes gets attributed to Ben Franklin, but Voltaire came before Ben Franklin. But common sense is not so common. No. And and that it's so true that common sense, it's not common. You think you look at it and think, well, everybody would know that. Right. But then you realize, no, not everybody. And usually it's 80, 20, 80% 80 of the people don't know that. Right. Our business right. is built on getting that 80% in the gym, right? Getting them to foam roll, getting them to stretch, getting them to warm up, getting them to understand, you know, how to do basic core work, getting them to understand how to do basic strength exercises in a way that that doesn't hurt them and we've built a huge business right and that's one of the reasons why i had that falling out with that crossfit gym is because i started asking why too much and started trying to incorporate unilateral exercises into the warm-ups because they're not going to give up those those squats and those thrusters and all that stuff which is fine but we just need to get the brain focusing on one leg and one arm at a time so that there's less movement dysfunction and then i like i said just kept asking why why are we doing that and then yeah. the less that they could answer that the more frustrated they got and then they were just like it's time for you to leave and i'm like i agree with you it is time for me to leave so because if you can't tell somebody why you're doing something then why are you doing it and that's just like that's the the biggest thing that i preach nowadays is you should know why. Why are you doing? Well, and I, I can remember um, when I very first started, my very first encounters with CrossFit and led me to some exercises um, or some articles. And yeah, one of them yeah. was called Killer Workouts. Yeah. That was the title of the article. And there were quotes in there from Greg Glassman saying things like, uh, you know, injuries are part of training. If falling off the rings and breaking your neck scares you, you know, then we're not for you. And I was just like, what the I don't think I can get on board with this stuff. Yeah, I, <laughs> you know, injuries are not part of training. You're not, if you train, you're not going to get hurt. You shouldn't be expecting to get injured. Right. But that was, I mean, it was right in the literature. Right. And I thought this, this is just not good stuff. Right. And, and injuries, injuries are a part of sport, but I don't think they should be a part of training. Right, exactly. And that's why right. I said injuries happen in sport. I get it. And then that was their defense. Well, CrossFit, it's a sport. And it's like, and, and I'm like, well, not really. I mean, maybe at the CrossFit games level, it's a sport. But most people that are doing CrossFit, they're not doing it because it's a sport. Right. They're doing it as exercise, as a workout. And the idea that your workout is going to injure you. And there were jokes about, you know, guys giving themselves rhabdo. I mean, it was just, it was like a bizarre. I still have them in my files because whenever anybody starts arguing with me about CrossFit, I'm like, okay, you know, I'll pull the quotes out. I'm like, defend this for me. Just defend yeah. it. Tell right. me how it possibly makes sense in the idea. Cause we're supposed to be in the wellness industry. Right. That's really what we're doing. We're trying to make people healthier. We're not trying to make people, you know, like I said, you know, the, the CrossFit argument used to be, well, you know, there's all, you know, multimodal, blah, 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 or all the, whatever that goes with it. And I'm like, yeah, you know, if you like, whatever, you know, jump into somebody's pool, climb over their fence. They got a Dolman pincher. You got to get away. You know, maybe what you're doing in CrossFit's going to help you. You know what I mean? Cause all of a sudden you've got to, you know, sprint while soaking wet, vault the fence, run down the street. But I mean, that's not 
there's very few real life situations that present themselves in this, hey, by the way, we're going to work to exhaustion. Right. Kind of scenario. It's just not, it's not real. Right. Yep. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> uh, and then so let's talk about uh, writing a book for a second, because that was one of the things that I wanted to do at the beginning of this pandemic was uh, write an ebook uh, for massage therapists, kind of giving them a step-by-step on, a, for lack of a better word, assessment, right? And like, because they have problems integrating stuff. And, you know, like, um, you know, like the FRC stuff, like Dr. Andrea Spina is really great at just giving you this plethora of information. But then he's just like, okay, I'll see you later. And a lot of people don't know how to integrate that into their practice and they're afraid to try. And I keep telling people I was blessed with the fuck it gene. I'm just going to go in there and I'm going to give it a shot. And if it fails, I have this tried and true stuff in my back pocket that I can rely on, you know? So, um, I, man, writing a book is, that's a, that's a level of commitment. (laughs) Once I got started, you're just like, Oh my God, it's really kind of overwhelming. But you know, the thing is, there's a couple things with writing a book. One, I always encourage people, just write and write and write and write and don't worry about writing a book. Okay. Worry about writing some articles, worry about writing some chapters. It's the old, have you ever read Eat That Frog, the book? No, I've not. Yeah. So, you know, it's the old joke, how do you eat the frog? And, yeah. you know, the answer is always, you know, one bite at a time. And right. it's sort of, you know, how do you write a book? You probably start with an outline and you start with a preface and you start with a dedication and then you you write chapter one <laughs> yeah, and you try to write what I did when I was really, when I really, really <laughs> committed to writing the book, I started saying, okay, I got to write 500 words a day. And I'd get up in the morning and I literally would set the word. Like I'd look at the word count on my word document. I'd say, okay, I have a word document right now that has, let's say 10,000 words. I can't stop till I'm at 10,500. Right. And I just start writing. And I mean, I'm doing that now. I'm rewriting my second book. And I mean, I have, it's still, I have 75,000 words written yeah. in this second book. And I don't even, you know, I don't know, it'd be done 2021. But I just, you know, every couple of days I sit down and I just take another chunk. Yeah. And right now I'm trying to work through, I'm trying to integrate, I don't know, 38 years of learning about the core into one coherent chapter yeah, and a chapter that's more coherent than new functional training for sports was a couple of years ago. Right. But, and that's the yeah. other thing that bothers me immensely is when people talk about the core, they only talk about like ab work and stuff like that. And I'm like, man, that just drives me crazy. Cause there's so much going on there and there's so much, uh, you know, rotation, anti-rotation. There's those, it's, it's a loaded question and I can't even, uh, imagine what 38 years of experience is like working with people's cores because I've only had like five. So. Yeah. I mean, and it's really, like I said, it, it's incredibly interesting to try to take, you know, Stuart McGill's perspective and Charlie Simon's perspective and the postural restoration Institute perspective and all these perspectives and say, okay, here's how all this stuff interrelates and here's how we can make it useful in training. Right. Here's how you can understand because it's the same thing. It's like the functional training idea making people understand core training is difficult. The analogy I said, it's like, um, I use the analogy of sales and rigging. Yeah. You know, and 
sales are useless without rigging. Right. Right. You know, if you got a sail with no rope, the sail just flaps around and doesn't make the boat go. Right. But suddenly, you know, if you get the right rope and the right amount of tension on the rope and you know exactly which way to pull and, and now all of a sudden you can make that thing move. Right. And I, I think that's the core in terms of, you know, we've got to, we've got to get the sails and the rigging and the mast and all these things together so that we can create the motion that we want to create. And, you know, it's, it's literally like, you know, it's almost symphonic in the sense that you've got to have all of these things operating correctly. Like you said, anti-rotation, anti-extension, anti-lateral flexion, you know, you're all those things are controlling these other muscles that are going to allow you to now propel yourself, whether it's forward, backward, up, down, whatever, but whatever it is, or just resisting or whatever it is. And I think that that's really important in uh, coaching is so basically what you did was just a metaphor, right? And I think metaphors are really important in coaching. So, you know, when I was teaching uh, uh, one of these women, how to deadlift, she was having a really hard time organizing her spine, but I understood that she was, you know, a, a competitive kickboxer. So I just said, brace, like I'm going to kick you in the stomach. And she's like, Oh, okay. And so you have to figure out ways different ways to explain the same concept to different people. And I think that's where metaphors are really, really important. Yep. Right up. I was it's learning to, I talk about learning to speak coach or learning to speak sport or whatever it is. Like if you can relate it to what that person already knows or already understands, <laughs> then it's going to be really, really easy. If yeah. you can't, it's going to be really, really hard. Right. I agree. Couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a really great conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go have dinner. Absolutely. And uh, real quick, before you go, tell everybody where they can find any information on you. Uh, so I'm all over the place. I am, uh, what am I? I'm mboyle1959 on Twitter. I love Twitter. Twitter is my favorite platform, but it's really interesting. Instagram, I'm almost doubling my Twitter followers right now on Instagram. I'm Michael underscore Boyle1959 on Instagram. And strengthcoach.com is my sort of personal website. Anthony Renner and I actually run it. And that's where I'm doing a lot of my day-to-day -day communications. We've got another website called bodybyboil.com, which is where we kind of, for lack of a better word, store all of our lectures and staff meetings and all that stuff. So uh, we got a lot of stuff going on. Right on. Perfect. Thank you so much.